The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and turn to somebody next to you and greet them with a kiss of love. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Married folks, take advantage of that. Uh, well, welcome to Sacred City. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have had too much coffee. I did not sleep well. I've got two kids that are sick at home. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks that are sick today, a lot of families that are sick. Um, it hit our home last night, and... Uh, course in the middle of the night and so I was dragging this morning so just had one more espresso this morning that might have been a mistake we'll see uh, we've been studying the book of first Peter now for a long time uh, since August and in the very beginning I kind of issued a uh, I don't know a charge an offer whatever I said if anyone would attempt to memorize the book of 1 Peter, that's five chapters. I would buy them dinner um, at Bass Street Chop House uh, down in Moline. And I doubt anybody was really motivated by the offer of steak. Um, none of the men were, I'm just going to say that. Uh, actually, we had two guys get close. They're like three or four chapters in. Uh, but we had two ladies memorize the entire book of 1 Peter. And so I am really stoked by that. I'm encouraged by that. Uh, Megan Hankner and Brandy Lynn. Yeah. Uh, so, so that, I mean, it just, it just goes to show you that, you know, how powerful our brains are if we really do put our minds to it. And it's, a, it's an investment that's going to return dividends for the rest of their life. I mean... Um, if you're in a missional community with them, you're probably going to be hearing from 1 Peter. All their counsel, all their counsel will come from 1 Peter because they've got it memorized. So if you see them, if you know them, uh, shake their hand, give them a high five, encourage them uh, this morning. And uh, looks like I get to eat at Bass Street. <laughs> I'm taking them out, so let's do it. Um, well, today we are wrapping up our five-month-long sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. If you've been with us the entire time, I'm sure that you've found this book 
uh, surprisingly relevant to our own cultural moment. This book has had a lot to teach us, and today it's going to be a fitting conclusion. Peter is going to wrap up his main theme and kind of tie a bow on it, if you will. He's going to give his readers their final uh, marching orders for living as Christians in exile in an anti-Christian society. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. We can jump right into it this morning. Father, uh, we welcome your Holy Spirit. Uh, We thank you for the word that you've given us, this uh, Bible that's inspired by you. We thank you for all the treasures found in it. We thank you that when we hide it in our heart, um, it keeps us from sinning against you. It encourages us towards good. It um, gives us security. It gives us peace. Um, it teaches us your ways. It teaches us about who you are. And so this morning, I ask that you would do that. You would reveal yourself to us, reveal your gospel to us, reveal your goodness to us, um, that you would speak to us through your word, that though uh, I might be a little tired and maybe over-caffeinated, you would speak through me, um, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, that you'd help us hear your word that you'd have to say to your church this morning for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you can remember back to when we first started this series, Peter began the letter by calling God's people spread across Asia Minor, elect exiles. This kind of startling moniker did at least two things. One, it helped them interpret their current cultural experience. So they were, they were being rejected and alienated uh, by their friends, by their families, by their neighbors, and the society as a whole. And Peter was telling them this rejection that you're experiencing, it's because of your faith in Christ. This is not an accidental occurrence. It's not maybe a personality fault or, or you're believing something that's wrong. This is something inherent to the gospel itself, that they had been chosen by God to know God, and that made them, by them being chosen and called out, that made them exiles from their native culture. So to put it really simply, because they were citizens of heaven, they were now foreigners in their culture that they were living in. They were immigrants in the uh, culture that they were living in. Therefore, they were to live as these foreign, peculiar people in the midst of a culture that was hostile to them. They, They weren't just meant to hide away in the corner of society somewhere and just hunker down and be really weird all by themselves, right? They were meant to walk out into a society and be peculiar people, be seen as weird because of their Christian values. That's what was going on. But secondly, this moniker of elect exiles also rooted them. It kind of rooted them and rooted their new cultural experience back into the Exodus event. Now we spent a year going through the book of Exodus a couple years ago or a year and a half ago. And in Exodus, we see that God's people, his elect had become exiles in Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years under the reign of the pharaohs, but God heard their cries for help and he rescued them. And the Exodus event is meant to give context for the experience of Peter's first century readers who are beginning to be experienced or experience persecution for their faith. So just as God's people were exiles in Egypt, God's people are still exiles here in first century Asia Minor. And 
we are still exiles here in 21st century United States of America. And this is meant to connect our stories, the way we define our lives, the way we understand our existence, the cultural narratives that we have. It's meant to define us and root us back into the Exodus event. Just as Israel humbled themselves and cried out to God while enduring suffering, so too must Peter's readers. So too must we. Peter wants us to see this connection. So he uses a common Old Testament phrase that speaks of how God redeemed his people from Egypt. If you read the story, you know, one could gloss over it and say, wow, God raised up an amazing leader, Moses, and Moses led his people. And it's all about Moses. But that's not how the Old Testament interprets the event of Exodus. This is what he says in Exodus 13, verse 9. For with a strong hand... The Lord, Yahweh, has brought you out of Egypt. He doesn't just say with a strong leader. He raised up a great leader. That is the means. That is the instrument God used. But the way they interpret it theologically is that God's strong right hand delivered them out of exile. And we see Peter use that same language this morning. Let's take a look in our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So just as Israel humbled themselves before the Lord by crying out to him and following Moses' leadership, and that resulted in their deliverance from Egypt to be able to worship God, so too, if these readers will humble themselves Submit to the leadership of their elders. It will result in their deliverance. Look at verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Look, so that you should underline humble yourselves and underline so that, right? It's kind of like an if-then statement. If you do this, then this is true. Humble yourselves so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Whether later in this life or on the last day, God will exalt. What does that mean? He will lift up. He will set on a high place. He will glorify his people, Peter says, at the proper time. So in a nutshell, that is the theme of 1 Peter. Though God's people are currently in a low position in society, they're being persecuted. They are suffering. If they will humble themselves before him, then one day they will be exalted. They'll be lifted up at the proper time. That proper time we all want, could we all want it to be later in this life, like tomorrow, right? It might be, but for most of them, it will be on the last day when Christ comes back to make all things right. Therefore, if they have some, a long stretch of time where they're going to experiencing persecution and suffering and the brokenness of this world and all the confusion that that brings, Peter is preparing them not to look at their current circumstances, 
the current situation in their life to give them encouragement and power and motivation for living as Christians in a hostile society. No, he's encouraging them to look forward to the glory that they're going to experience on that last day when Christ comes back. He's not promising them that everything's just going to work out. I know that's what your girlfriend says when you call her. You're stressed. You don't really know if things are going, going to go well. Everything's going to work out. It'll all be okay, right? That's one of the first things that we've been kind of taught in our Oprah-fied society. It just flows out of us. It's all going to work out. You realize there's a lot of people in, in this world that it just didn't work out for? That, that it's all going to work out. Walk out, hits by a car. Well, that didn't work out, right? There's a lot of experiences that we go through where it honestly, it's just not going to work out. And so some of that, you know, fluffy, nice, soft pop psychology, it just doesn't work. It just falls flat. Especially, I mean, in our, in our society, you got a 50-50 chance. Depends on where you're at, you know. But in a lot of places in the world, that kind of advice is meaningless. So Peter says, it might not work out in this life, but at the proper time, if you trust God, it, you will be exalted. Now we're going to get into that. So again, once again, this is the dominant theme, trying to wrap everything up today in this last sermon. The dominant theme from 1 Peter, this, you see it again, kind of rise to the surface. Here it is. Humility comes before exaltation. Suffering comes before glory. No one swaggers their way into the kingdom of God. If you want to be exalted, if you want to be caught up into the glory of God for eternity, you must begin by humbling yourself. But what does it mean to humble yourself? What does it mean to humble yourself? Well, last week we saw that in the first part of chapter 5, humbling yourself had to do with how we relate to our leaders and how we relate to one another. We're told in 1 Peter 5 to submit to our pastor elders, our spiritual leaders, and we are to, quote, clothe ourselves, tie humility on ourselves, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, here's the, the reason, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But now this week, connecting into that, you see that therefore again, if you've been with us, you just know Peter loves the word therefore, pointing back, rooting everything in what he said before. Peter digs down into that humility a little bit deeper. He goes to the root of humility. He says, we must humble ourselves, look, under the mighty hand of God. If anyone wants to be exalted, they must first be humbled under the hand of God. But what does it mean then to humble yourselves under the hand of God? Well, thankfully, Peter does not leave us guessing. And for those of us whose life is not going the way you wanted, wanted it to, for those who are suffering and want an explanation from God, for those of us who've been rejected by some of our family members, maybe even our spouse because of our faith in Jesus. See, one of the most common reactions to suffering in this life is anxiety. Dictionary 
Dot.com defines anxiety as, quote, a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Now, I'm just going to tell you, my wife is leaving for six days today to go visit her sister who just had a baby, okay? I have four kids under the age of 10. Two of them have the flu. I didn't sleep well last night. These two things are related. I'm going to be with them for the next six days solo, right? I still have to preach next week. I'm feeling a little anxious about this. I've got a little anxiety. This is an, un, this is a, you know, I've never done this before. And this is, an uncertain, this is an uncertain event with a definitely uncertain outcome. Okay? I'm not sure how it's going to go. My wife is at home with the kids right now, so I can talk freely about this. She's been worried for two weeks. I got worried last night. That's just how it goes. It's happening. It's really happening. Now, anxiety, it's strange. It can just kind of hit you out of the blue. You're heart starts racing, your adrenaline might spike. For me, nine times out of 10, it happens in the middle of the night. Your brain seems to be over-caffeinated and gets caught in this infinite loop of what-if scenarios. And all of them, of course, are worst-case scenarios, right? What if the plane crashes? What if my husband cheats on me? What if I lose my job? What if God allows horrible things into my life? What if this lump or this spot is actually cancer? And something deep in us grabs a hold of these horrible what-if scenarios and forces them to to the forefront of your mind and demands of you, work this scenario out. What would you do if this happened? And you're, if it's like me, your brain won't shut off until you've worked out every possible scenario, right? Doesn't matter if it's 4 a.m., right? Doesn't matter if you've got to get up at 5 a.m. Your brain says, now's a good time to think about this. But anxiety can also come with like nothing particular in its focus. You just kind of feel it creep over you. Like the cold, if you, if you leave your door open and that cold just kind of comes in and you get that shiver while you're sitting on your couch, it's, it can just be a sense that something awful is around the corner. I don't know what it is, but I've just got this low sense of dread. And so what do we do when anxiety hits you? When anxiety creeps up from the inside? What do you do? How do you... How do you handle that? Well, first off, we need to know that anxiety is not a new occurrence. Now, it has been heightened to some extent because um, of the, the growth of technology. Technology has actually made us more anxious because we're always on, we're always buzzing, we're always connected. We don't have downtime. We're not communicating as much face-to-face. It's through text and it's through video and it's through all kinds of other things. So, and also we just expect more out of ourselves, 
right? We expect to be able to, like we have this expect, if you're on social media, you have, there's this expectation out there that any one of your 500, 1,000 friends can message you and you should have to respond to them like right away. Like no other time in the history of humanity has this ever been the case, right? When I grew up, there was this thing that hung on the wall of our kitchen with this really long cord that would ring and sometimes we just wouldn't answer it. And, and you could ring and ring and ring and just not get a hold of us. There was not, we didn't have an answer machine for a long time, right? We'd be sitting at the table, phones ringing, don't answer, it's dinner time, right? And you might get a hold of somebody, you might not. But today with this thing in our pocket, we are always kind of connected and there's this expectation if somebody texts you, you got to respond. If somebody calls, you got to respond. And so it has, it's increased our responsibilities. It's increased our feelings of, I should be able to talk to that person. I should be able to help. I should be able to go there and provide content for that and do all this stuff. And that increases our sense of anxiety. It's also increased your sense of feeling, you know, we've, we determine our value by how people's Instagram profiles look and how their Facebook profiles look. And we can be tempted to define our worth, compare ourselves to all of our friends on Facebook. This all has increased our anxiety. But over 2,000 years ago, the apostle Peter here is writing about anxiety. It's nothing new. And we could be tempted to think, well, this is probably some kind of backwoods ancient advice not to be heeded. But what do you do with your anxiety? Right? Modern society, what do we say? Pop a pill. Take this pill. And that pill sometimes works. That pill sometimes doesn't work. So let's, let's look and see what Peter's advice is for those when anxiety hits you. I'm just going to start in verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting for me because Peter does not tell them to stop feeling anxious. He doesn't rebuke them for their fear or maybe their irrational worry, or maybe even just rational worry. He doesn't rebuke them for their worry and their anxiety. No, Peter tells them, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting your anxieties on him. Now, it's in order to see the connection here. In verse 7, the participle casting modifies the main verbal phrase, humble yourselves, from verse 6. So Peter is saying, humble yourself by casting your cares on God. Peter's command is drawn from Psalm 55, 22 that says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He'll never let the righteous fall. The word translated here as anxieties is used for burden or worries in Psalm 55. So I want you to think of this. What is, it, what is he talking about when he says, cast your anxieties on the Lord? He's talking about your anxieties, your cares, your concerns, the things that you are worried about right now. Peter says, cast these things, well, humble yourself by casting these things onto the Lord. What does it mean to cast something? 
To cast means to throw something upon someone or someone else. So here's the illustration. I'm carrying a 200-pound backpack, right? All the things that I'm responsible for, my family concerns, my relational concerns, my health concerns, my spiritual concerns, the, the, my business, like being a provide, all of these things that a, a grown-up adult male, I'm going to just say, and we all carry them, but, but as the spiritual leader of my home, that I'm carrying these things, right? And they can weigh me down. They're a burden. They slow me down. Sometimes, you know, I'm at home. My wife's like, where are you right now? I'm sitting there, but I'm not there because I have delved back into the recesses of my mind and I'm working out some anxiety, right? I'm working out some issue. I got to solve something at work. I got to figure something out somewhere and I'm, I'm there, but I'm not there, right? And Peter says, what we're meant to do is take off the backpack and put it on Jesus. That's what it means to cast my anxieties. I'm not carrying this. I'm going to give it to God to take care of. All right, that's kind of the illustration that he's painting here. So Peter is telling his anxious readers, transfer your burdens off of you and onto the Lord. It's not yours to carry. Now, I want you to think about this. This includes, this is how Christ took our place on the cross, he became our sin. He takes our burdens. He takes our sins. He takes our anxieties. He takes our fears on the cross and he pays for them. He, he dies the death that we deserve there and he's resurrected to new life, showing us that he's dealt with all of our fears and our anxieties and our sins. And he says, Christian, cast these things onto the Lord. But it's interesting if you know, why does he say humble yourself? Why does he say humble yourself by casting? Many times our anxieties, if somebody is anxious, when I'm anxious and I tell you that I'm anxious, what I want to do is tell you why I am anxious, right? Listen to what I have to do. Listen to what I have. Listen to what's going on in my life right now, right? And I just want to list it all off. And then I want you to go, Ooh, man, I'd be anxious too. Go on. I think it'll work out for you. <laughs> that should go well. You know what, Justin? You're, you're a strong leader. God's called you. He's put his spirit in you. You can, I bet you can do it. You can handle it. Now, I don't, this is what's going on. Peter is relating. He's connecting anxiety with pride. He's saying, humble yourself by casting. What's that saying? All the junk and all the good things and all the responsibilities, all the things that could cause anxiety in my life, part of what causes the anxiety is the thought, the belief that I can handle it. I should be able to handle it. 
What Peter is saying is worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. It brings worries and anxious thoughts into the mind and says, I have to figure it out. Instead of, I don't really know, I'm going to cast that on the Lord because he cares for me. And again, the verse right before this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The majority of my anxiety stems from my pride that believes deep down that I have the resources necessary to manage my life. I can't tell you how many people that I counsel that carry this burden. Young moms, I should be able to handle this. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's from our, necessarily, I can't put a finger on it. If it's from our society, it's from our upbringing. It's just from something in our gut that we feel ashamed to have to ask for help. Every other mom is just killing it. I'm the only one that's ruining my kids. I can't keep the kitchen table clean. Right? No, you can't. It's the only reason to get a dog is to let him clean up. It's the only reason. You walk over to a young mom's house, the house is clean, you're like, oh, she got a dog. <laughs> She's not, no, I'm going to go to that. But. <laughs> so many of us think I should be able to handle the pressure in my society, the pressure in my life right now. I should be able to handle it. What's wrong with me? And, in, and, and we, we feel this inadequacy in us. And, in, and what we tend to do in our American society is try to pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, suck it up, make it happen, get focused, wake up earlier, stay up later, burn the candle at both ends. And then we wonder why we start gaining weight, right? Our body starts breaking down. That there's tons of studies out there that anxiety destroys our physical health. One of the first things you go to the doctor and you're like, oh, I got this problem. I got high blood pressure. I got all this. I got this. How stressed are you? How much anxiety do you got? You got a pill for that? That's what I'm looking for, doc. I don't want to change my lifestyle. I don't want to change what I believe. I want a pill from you to make everything better. Peter says, it's not a pill. Peter says, not just ignoring the anxiety and putting your head down and going. He says, you humble yourself. You get healthy under the anxiety, with the anxiety, by casting it on the Lord, putting it on Jesus Christ, remembering the gospel that he carries us. He carries all of our sins to the cross. He, and I'm going to get into this in a second. Peter says, don't just suck it up and push through. Christians cast their anxieties. Now, how do we do that? Well, around here, we have, one, we have a few catchphrases. And one of these catchphrases that we kind of use is gospeling yourself. Applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to our anxious fears. And I'm going to kind of drill down into that in the conclusion of this as we look at the text as a whole. I'm just going to say it here and I'm going to 
move on. Other areas that we cast our cares on the Lord is we pray. If you read through the Psalms, you see David very anxious many times and he's crying out to God and he's casting his cares on him. And now this is, if you're like me, this is what casting your anxieties on the Lord looks like. Take this backpack off. Lord, it's oh, I'm so tired. I can't care anymore. I'm just drowning. I'm just drowning. Okay, I'll take it back on now. Five minutes later, take the, take the backpack, Lord. I just can't carry it anymore. I just keep my hand on it. Just in case you need a little help, then I'm trying to wrestle him. I'm wrestling it away from him, right? Why? There's something about me, maybe you're the same way, that feels good about being anxious. I'm pulled in a lot of different ways. I'm busy. People need me. I'm important. My opinion matters. I want to know that I can handle it, that I'm, you know, that I can take charge. And so what am I doing? I'm always wrestling this away, and I'm wondering why my, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm not enjoying my salvation. I'm not enjoying seasons of my life. And so we can gospel. How do we cast our cares in the Lord? We gospel ourselves. I'm going to get into that a little bit. Second, we pray. Just keep doing it. Lord, I'm sorry. That's why we repent of our sins every week. I took the burden back on me. I'm going to push it back on you. Three, we share our burdens with another believer in our missional community. In our, we just say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this today. I'm believing crazy thoughts today. My identity's wrapped up in my performance today. And I need to cast this anxiety onto my brother and sister. And hopefully they're going to share the gospel with me. Now, why? Look at, look at this. Look at verse five. Or look at verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I meet so many Christians who think that God has them suffering in this moment to teach them a lesson just to make them stronger. They feel that their anxieties are God putting them on them, testing them. When Peter is saying, no, 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 no. That can be a form of pride. God wants you actually to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. God, our father, cares for us. Now, some of you, some of us, see Peter saying, okay, I see. I'm anxious, cast, right? Cast your anxieties on him. Some of us are like, oh, it sounds so nice. And some of us are like, sounds so trite, is what it sounds like. Well, just cast it, right? Please don't do that either. Somebody shares their anxieties, I'll oh, just cast it, brother. You just need to cast that, just cast it out right now. Yeah, I'm gonna cast something out, come on, right? What's he talking about? This is not, don't worry, be happy. This is not, don't worry, everything's going to work out. This is not, ignorance is bliss. This is not, let go and let God. He's not counseling them to just blindly and blissfully accept whatever comes into your life. He's not, you know, he's not saying, don't be thoughtless. 
Look at the next verse here. Be sober mindful. Be watchful. Now why? Why do we need to be sober minded? Why do we need to be watchful? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is saying everything that comes into your life, it comes through the hand of God, but it's not, but, but God uses and allows the enemy to do some things to us. So it's not a good thing. When you're suffering, it's not necessarily a good thing. The Lord will use it for our good, but it doesn't mean it's a good thing. Peter's reminding, you have an adversary. We have an adversary. We have an enemy, and his name is the devil, and he is a predator. That he wants to devour Christians and snuff out and kill their faith in God. Now this, what I'm about to share with you, it's probably, it, it is, it's meant to be encouraging, but at first it's not going to sound encouraging. Okay. So pre- preface that a little bit. This is what Revelation chapter two, verses 10 says. The angel speaking to the church there. And he says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. I can imagine the listeners going, okay, go on. This is how it ends. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Peter's thought process here is we have an enemy out there who's trying to devour us, but the best thing he can do is kill us and send us to glory. That's the worst he can do to us. Therefore, and the enemy knows this, he tries to steal and kill and destroy, but I think he's far more interested in people who don't know Christ because for them, he can ruin them for eternity. For the Christian, the best that he can do, or the worst, whatever, the worst that he can do is kill us and send us to glory. So what does he try to do? Well, I think what he tries to do, since he can't destroy our souls, is he tries to get us off mission, which would make us fruitful for God's kingdom right now. And he does this through two primary ways. First, He tempts us, as we've seen throughout this letter, to misinterpret our trials as God's punishment. This leads us to doubt the goodness of God. It leads us to push away from the Father and see Him as something other than He really is. Right? Peter says, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. We sometimes, our anxieties, they cause us to push away from God because we think He doesn't care for us. When we're living like God doesn't care for us, we will never lead others to know him, right? What kind of gospel message is that? God doesn't really care for me very much. Would you want to come meet this God who doesn't really care for me very much, right? I've got a really apathetic father. You want to know him? You want to be in the family? 
We can all be illegitimate children together. It'd be great. That's not a gospel. That's not good news. And therefore, if we're living like we believe that is reality. Now, listen, I could, if you're a Christian in here, I could walk up, is God good? Oh, God's good all the time. I get you, you get the mantra. I get you know he cares for you up here. That doesn't even, that, that, that's not concerning me. That doesn't consider Paul. That doesn't consider, concern Peter. What he's talking about is how are you living? Because we live out of what we really believe. And if I believe that God cares for me, then I'll be casting my anxieties on him and not trying to deal with them all myself, right? And so Peter says, one of the ways that Satan gets us off mission is when we perceive God as not caring for us and that just leads us down a dark path of depression, feeling sorry for ourselves, and it gets us off mission. We're never going to share the gospel. And secondly, the, de- the devil always tempts us to sin instead of suffer. And I think Peter might have um, the story of Cain and Abel in his mind here as he's talking about Satan and the devil walking around prowling like this predator looking for someone to take out. If you know the story, Cain, Cain offers an offering to the Lord. Abel, their brothers in the, in the book of Genesis, they both offer their own offerings to the Lord. God accepts one and he rejects the other. And he, he rejects Cain's and Cain, Cain gets really mad about it. Cain reacts in pride about it. Why didn't, you know, why didn't you accept me? Why did you accept my brother's gift and not mine? And God speaks to him and says, if you do well, you would be accepted too. But he says this, beware, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So in the midst of this pride coming up in Cain and this jealousy between him and his brother, God steps in and God says, whoa, sin is right there, ready to devour you. Sin is ready to jump on that pride of yours and ruin your life. You better watch it. It's trying to rule you. And obviously, we learn that Cain ignores the voice of God and sin does that very thing. And he ends up going out into a field and murdering his brother. First family on earth and a brother kills a brother. See, Cain did not humble himself before the mighty hand of God. He did not resist the devil And he gave into this prideful desires and lashed out and killed his own brother. Now, many of us, we might laugh at this, like the devil, you believe in the devil. I wish I had time to go off on all this. But yes, we believe in the personification of evil. And I think just about anyone who's experienced some some suffering in this world should. What motivates, we just see it in California, what motivates a mother and a father to lock their 12 children and torture their 12 children in a house for years on end. What what motivates that? Evil. Evil itself. Satan. What motivates men to go on, you know, to create genocidal regimes? The devil. I'm not going to get into it anymore. And so Peter says, or we're reminded, there's two ways the devil can kind of 
get us off mission. One, doubt the goodness of God. And second, when we're suffering, we will always be tempted to sin. Instead of enduring our suffering in humility, we will be tempted, listen, to pursue a sinful relationship instead of suffering through a season of loneliness and casting our anxieties on the Lord every five minutes if we need to. We'll be tempted to drink our problems away instead of casting them on the Lord. We'll be tempted to take matters into our own hands like Peter did in the garden when he pulled his sword, when suffering was coming for Jesus and Peter pulled his sword and he cut off one of the ears of the men coming to take Jesus to the cross. We're all tempted to take matters into our own hands instead of entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says, don't doubt God's goodness in the midst of your trials and don't sin instead of suffer. Instead, look what he says. Verse nine, resist him, the devil. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Notice he doesn't say attack him. There's t- people fall off on two sides of the horse here, right? Either they don't believe in the devil or the devil's under every bush and every nook and cranny, right? right? You got acne? Oh, it's the devil. Let's cast it out. Every teenager's like, I wish. Cast it out. We can think too much of him. We can think too little of him. Peter doesn't say go on the offensive and go after the devil. He says, resist him. How do we resist him? Verse nine, firm in your faith. Faith, not works, not our own strength, not our own power. The work of Christ has conquered the enemy on our behalf. We believe it. That's what faith means. We believe it. We trust in the gospel. Then he follows that up with one more practical way. As we're suffering and we're anxious and the devil might be attacking us, he says this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That thing in our mind that says, I'm the only one, I must be doing something wrong. Why is it going wrong for me? Why is it hard for me? Peter's like, no, 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 that's not true. All your brothers, all your sisters, all the Christians, they're all experiencing this time of suffering. You're going to. Your Savior suffered. You're going to suffer. He went to the cross. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I know that's a little heavy, I don't like to hear all that. Look at verse 10. If I could say one verse that sums up all of 1 Peter, this is it. And after you have suffered a little while. Now, I'm going to push pause here. One of the reasons we push back on this is because we're so comfortable in our middle-class lifestyle, in, in, in our culture, okay? 
Some of us, we don't like to hear about suffering. We, we, we don't even want to equip ourselves. Peter is trying to equip these believers to endure the suffering they're in now and because Peter knows and God knows that greater suffering is coming later. And I believe that in our culture right now, we're suffering a little bit, but greater suffering is coming. Christianity is getting pushed farther to the margins. If you believe the Bible, you're laughed at, you're scoffed at. It's getting pushed out of the courts. It's getting pushed out of a lot of places. So I think greater persecution is coming and we need to equip ourselves right now for that suffering that's coming coming in the future. And this is how we do it. This is the book of 1 Peter has been foundational for men like Martin Luther King Jr. who were suffering great injustices, but who who persevered and pushed on in the midst of that suffering, right? This has been, a, has been foundational for people that have experienced suffering and persecution throughout the centuries. And look what this verse says. And after you have suffered a little while, now we don't know how long that little while is. It might be the rest of our life. Here's the good news. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. Pause. Here's the picture Peter's writing. On the day of our death, or when Christ comes back, every single Christian, every single person on the planet will stand before God to be judged. And the Christian, whose all of their sins have already been judged in Christ on the cross, and they've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and now they are made righteous because of Christ, and they have the Holy Spirit in them, and they endure persecution like a faithful Christian on this earth, and they maybe they never saw any restoration. Maybe everything in their life was taken from them, including their life. We read stories of the martyrs. We read stories of people who have made great sacrifices in other cultures and even, you know, in, in other places around the world and give up their life for Christ. But it should be true of all Christians everywhere that we're making some sacrifices. The day we get face-to-face with Jesus Christ, one of the things that Christ will do is restore us. Everything that we think we've lost, everything we think we've sacrificed will be restored to us and our own bodies and our own minds and our own souls will, re- will be, will, will, ah, how do I say this? Will receive restoration, be made new, made whole. All sin will be removed. So Peter's saying, look into glory, the eternal glory of Christ. Look into that. One day you're going to be restored. One day it's all going to make sense. One day you're going to be made whole. Keep looking, keep reading. He, he goes on, he adds to it. Restore. Confirm. Oh. Stand before the Lord. He confirms. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You're mine. You're forgiven. Enter into your eternal rewards. He'll strengthen us. We hum- we're humbled now, we're exalted there. We're weak now, we'll be strong there. And establish you. The word establish also means secure. secure. You'll have a security. 
right now. You never know. We have to, he says, be on guard, right? Have a sober mind, be on guard. You're always kind of looking for the, you know, looking out for the, we're being tempted and all this pressure's coming us. But once we get to heaven, once we walk with God in the new heavens, the new earth, we'll be secure. We don't have to worry what's happening around the bush. We don't have to worry what's happening down the neighborhood. We don't have to worry what's happening in our own heart. We don't have to be concerned with that because sin has been removed from, from us. We'll never lose our eternal security. We'll never lose our eternity with Christ. Now, as he says this, look what he, look what he does. As soon as he says it, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul, Peter, yeah. Peter is writing this letter and as he gets to the end of it and he just, he just kind of shares the gospel, he says, humble yourself, cast your cares on the Lord. Don't worry, he's going to strengthen you. He's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to secure you. And he just breaks out in a little, a little worship fest. He just says, this is a doxology. He just says, to him be the dominion, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is what I want to do my last five minutes, I want to pull out on this text and I want to look at the God who Peter is describing for us. And this is how we got, one of the, one of the ways I'm going to do that is what we call around here the four G's, four truths about God that if you believe them affect your life in this way. It's one way to gospel yourself when you're not believing the gospel to believe and to think about and to apply the truths of the gospel to your heart, to your anxiety, to your fears. From this text this morning, we see God is great. We see that God is good. We see that God is glorious. And we see that God is gracious. First, this is what we say. If God is great, I don't have to be in control. I want you to think about that. If God is great, then I don't have to carry the backpack because he's sovereign and he's he's in control and he can work out everything in my life. He can handle everything and anything that I could ever encounter or I could ever hand over to him. His hand is mighty. His dominion is forever. I have limited supply. I have limited resource. I have limited power. I have limited wisdom. God is unlimited. God is great and therefore I can humbly take off the anxieties, take off the worries and give it to him. And I don't have to be in control. This is, if you're like me, if you are bent towards anxiety, this is a truth that you need to hear. God is great. So you don't have to be in control. Secondly, God is good. So I don't have to look anywhere else for what I need. God cares for us and he will lovingly take care of everything that that we're ever going to encounter if we entrust it, hand it over to him. His promises are kind. His promises are generous. His promises are good to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Third, God is glorious. So I don't have to fear anyone or anything else. Peter says that God has called us to the eternal glory in Christ. That word eternal. The sun has a glory, but one day that glory will fade. 
only the glory of God could occupy us and satisfy us for an eternity. And God promises that for us. Can you imagine, and I know marketers, try, they tell us this. Can you imagine if there was a toy that you could give to your child and it would always occupy them? It would always satisfy them? They would never move on from it? Right? Now, I know every toy promises that. But we all know, right? We give them the toy. This one's for five minutes. That one's for five minutes, right? Moms just have to constantly go through the house and be like, okay, which ones will they not notice I get rid of, right? Picking them all up. The only thing that will satisfy us for eternity is the eternal glory of God. And that's been secured for us because of the work of Jesus. God is glorious, so we don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to fear anybody else. Last, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. Pride always feels like it has to make a name for itself. The voice of pride in the back of your head basically says, you're not there yet. You're not good enough. The next accomplishment, the next thing. Go out and make a name for yourself. Pride is always worried about where they measure up with those around them. Pride is always worried what other people might be doing better or getting more praise than I am. But in the gospel, we see that God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Those who are obsessed with their own performance will never have the humility necessary to look up to the perfect performance of Jesus done on our behalf. Once I see and understand and believe that Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and he died the death that I deserve to die because of my sin, I realize that God is not just out there with this arbitrary standard that maybe if I'm good enough or pray enough or memorize enough Bible or do enough good deeds that someday I might merit my way into heaven. But God is actually infatuated with the obedience of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus secured for me forever my eternity with Christ, my eternity with the Father. Humility is necessary to get our eyes off of our own obedience, off of our own performance. Once I realize that God in this text is the God of all grace, it frees me to be myself. I don't have to prove myself to him. I don't have to prove myself to anyone else. Jesus has done it all for me. I am accepted by God by sheer grace. And this reality does two things simultaneously. One, it humbles me to the dust. Isaiah tells us our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our best deeds are full of sin through and through, sinful motivations, all kind of stuff, our best deeds. So it humbles me to the dust. I could never earn this salvation. I could never make my way into heaven. I could never get God's approval on my own. 
but it also gives me an unshakable confidence. Listen, understanding that God is the God of all grace makes me a hundred times bolder than I ever imagined. Because I realized, wait, 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 I'm secure. My eternity is secure. Christ has done it all for me. If Christ did it without any of my obedience, without any of my help, without any of my behavior adding to it, then, then, and I'm secure up there, my, I'm going to be in glory with him, well, then I can never lose it. I can never be afraid that something I'm going to do is somehow going to get me out of heaven or, or is going to mess that plan up. I didn't earn my salvation, therefore I can't lose it either. And if I can't lose it, it gives me a boldness in sharing the gospel with my friends. It gives me a confidence that if God saved me, God can save them. And look how Peter finishes up this letter. He, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, so this is the guy delivering the letter. Okay, he's saying, Silvanus, I gave him the letter with my own hand. Silvanus has taken it to you. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This is it. There's no other grace out there. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that's code word for Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you are in Christ. This is the true grace of God. There is no other. Stand firm in it. That's what Peter would say to us. That's what Peter says to his readers. No matter what you're going through, no matter how heavy the anxieties are, cast, humble yourself, cast your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. Christ has carried our greatest burdens the burden of our sin, the burden of our debt to God. And listen, if we can trust him with our salvation, if we can trust him with our sin, if we can trust him with our eternity, can't we trust him with our children? Can't we trust him with our careers? Can't we trust him with our day-to-day life? The things that breed so much of our anxiety? We pray, Father, we thank you for this, the book of 1 Peter that you wrote through your apostle, your fellow elder, Peter, he called himself. We thank you for the kind of the way that this book can pull back the curtain on our own life and our own experiences. It'd be that smelling salt that wakes us up. And I pray this morning that it would be humbling to us. That we would not feel it necessary to carry our own burdens and work out our own life, control the things in our life, but we could see you as great and hand over the control of our life to you. We look to the cross and we see that if you're willing to go that far to save us, how much more can we trust you with our day-to-day life? How much more can we trust you with the future of our kids and the future of our lives on this earth? 
Father, I pray that we could be captured by the surpassing glory of the new heavens and new earth that await us when Christ comes back. The eternal glory in Christ that's ours because of the work that you've done, not because of what we've done. Would you give us even now the faith to believe that? As we come this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper, we would cast our anxieties on you. We would cast our burdens, our worries, our stress on you this morning for you care for us. And in the sense that we would exchange, you said your, our burden is heavy, your burden is light. You want us to exchange that? And this morning as we open up our hands to receive the bread, which is your body, and the, blood, and the wine, which is your blood, that in a, in a sense, this would be an exchange of burdens. We'd be taking, we'd be giving you our anxieties and giving you our fears and we'd be receiving your body and your blood this morning. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you are doing. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.